All right, turn to Revelation chapter 21, and I want you to look at verse 5. Revelation 21, verse 5. Where we left off last time when we were together was verse 5. And, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Again, like we looked at last week, when God who says, remember, God who cannot lie, says these things are trustworthy and true, was he saying that everything else he said wasn't trustworthy and true? So what's he trying to say to us then? If you're going to miss anything, don't miss this, pretty much. These, I don't want you to miss this. Write this down. Of course, John had been told to write everything down, except for that one section where he wasn't allowed to write down what he saw. But for the most part, he had been told to write down what is, what will be, and what is to come. We've seen that through this whole study. But then God, in the middle of all this, says, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. And then he says, it's done. It's done. And what he's talking about when he says it is done is, Salvation has been paid for. When Jesus died on the cross, folks, get this into your head. He died for the sins of the whole world all at that time. On God's side of the ledger, mankind has been forgiven. But look at what it says. It doesn't mean that everybody goes to heaven. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. All right. All we need to do now is be thirsty. Go with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, look at verses 1 through 14. It says, When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Well, hang on, we got to stop there. Did he have to pass through Samaria? Not in our mindset, because if you know anything about the Jews, they didn't go through Samaria. They had nothing to do with the Samaritans. And if they were going from Judea to Galilee, they would actually go across the Jordan River, up around the hard route, and then into Galilee, because they wanted nothing to do with the Samaritans. Yet the scripture says he had to go through Samaria. Why did he have to go through Samaria? Very good. Remember in John chapter 5, Jesus said in John 5, 17, he said, my father's always at his work to this very day and I too am working. In verse 19, he then goes on and says, I only do what my father tells me to do. And so if he had to go through Samaria, the spirit of the father was telling him to go to Samaria. So he does. Verse 4, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. By the way, this is noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where will you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. 
The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. By the way, there's another one of those many places all throughout the Bible that shows if you've truly been saved, you can't lose it. Do you see what he says? If they ever receive the water I give him, they will never be thirsty again. And not only that, they'll spring up within them a, a spring of water heading to eternal life. But what's Jesus talking about here when he says the water that I give him? And before you answer, jump with me to John chapter 7. The Bible actually tells us. John chapter 7, look at verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For, though, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So now we see what the scripture is talking about, where the Bible says to anyone who is thirsty, let him come. We saw in Revelation chapter 21, verse 6, it says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. We see in John chapter 4, Jesus said, whoever drinks of this physical water here, this earthly water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never, ever be thirsty again and will spring up from, and within them a continual rivers of living water, if you will, that lead to eternal life. And then he said, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow these rivers of living water. By this he meant the Holy Spirit, who they were later, those who believed him were later to receive. And so what is he talking about when he says, whoever comes to me, I'll give him living, living water? What's he talking about? Holy Spirit, which means salvation. Salvation. Think about it this way. Right now, if you don't ever drink any more water, what's going to happen to you physically? You're going to die. You need water to live, don't you? It's no accident. God made it that way on purpose. He's actually even made us experience thirst a few times in our life, haven't we? And again, it's all the physical stuff that goes on in this world that God's created are all to point to spiritual truths. But he's now saying, whoever's thirsty spiritually, I will give living water and you'll never be thirsty again. I'll give you salvation. Now, at the same time, what do we have to do to get this water? Just ask for it. You see back in Revelation 21, verse 5 and 5 and 6, actually verse 6. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life, what? What's the rest of it? Without payment. It's free. There's nothing you have to do to be saved except believe. Oh, actually there is something you have to do. You have to be thirsty. And so folks, I want, you to, I want to take a second now to kind of just to encourage you a little bit tonight. Our job, as those of us who have received this living water, who've been forgiven of our sins, who God's given us as his spirit, he sealed us till the day of redemption. We don't have to worry about losing our salvation. We are, we're eternally secure in the Lord. We are saved. And actually, whether you know it or not, the Bible's promise that that spirit that he put within you is going to continually well up to eternal life. We are being renewed daily. Outwardly, we're wasting away. But inwardly, we, the scripture says not should be. It says we are being renewed Day by day. The Bible also says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will finish it. One thing I want you to understand is when it comes to your own process of becoming who God wants you to be, would you relax? 
He's going to finish what he started. And the sooner you believe that, just like you believed for justification, that you believe that God will accomplish his sanctification and you stop trying to help him make you better and believe that he's going to finish his work, you'll, find, you'll start finding yourself getting better because you stop trying to do it. But on top of that, our goal, our, 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 I, I'm going to change the word goal to role as his ambassadors is to what? Share with everyone the good news. What's the good news according to God in Revelation chapter 21, verse 5? According to Revelation 21, verse 5. And he said to me, what? It's done. Folks, that's our message. Sin has been paid for. All those people out there trying to get right with God. The Bible says that it's already been taken care of on God's side of the ledger. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. I know there's people out there that try to teach, well, well, if Jesus died for the whole world, then the whole world has to be saved. And since the whole world's not going to be saved, Jesus only died for the elect. That's not what the Bible teaches, folks. We're just going to let the scriptures be the scriptures. First John chapter 2, verse 2, he died not only for our sins, but also the sins of the entire world, all over and over. That's one of the things I'm going to be dealing with this weekend up in Mich Michigan is this whole predestination free will. And I'm going to spend hours with these leaders at this church to explain to them both sides of that argument are there. This salvation is something that's done by God. God gives us the faith. God does the work. God draws us. Yet at the same time, man has a responsibility. Man must respond. And Jesus died for the whole world. Try to figure it out in your head. It'll hurt you. But this much you can understand. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself through his death on the cross. Things in heaven, things on the earth, and things under the earth. Our role, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, is that we're now his ambassadors. And our message is... Be reconciled to God. God's already reconciled you on his side where he's paid for your sin. You just have to receive it now. But the only way you'll receive it is to realize you're thirsty spiritually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Isn't that what Jesus said in the Beatitudes? By the way, who's poor in spirit? Everyone. There's no one righteous, not even one. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. We are all spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who realize they're poor in spirit. That's why he says next, and blessed are those who mourn, who grieve over the fact that they're spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. The Beatitudes is the gospel, folks. Your message is not, hey, God's mad at you, but if you'll ask him to forgive you, he'll forgive you. Your message is, God loves you, for he so loved the world that he sent his only son. While we were his, still, his enemies, he died for us. Our message is very simple. And you don't even have to make sure that they understand it. You don't even have to make sure that they grasp it. You don't even have to make sure that they believe it. Your job is just tell them, God loves you, and he died for your sins. He sent his own son. He lived as a human. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross to pay for the sins of the world. And now he says to everyone, even in the last book of the Bible, it's done. It's been paid for. And if you're thirsty, just come to God through Jesus Christ without payment. And he'll give you everlasting life. Now, real quickly, go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You're getting something the Tuesday night crowd didn't get, so feel special. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Look at verse 1. Therefore, having this ministry, this is the ministry of sharing the gospel, 
By the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the mind of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Did you see it? In other words, do you really see what he's saying? If you go back to chapter 3, you'd see in verse 4, such is the confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. When we share the gospel, we need to just relax and understand that actually it has nothing to do with us. How many of you, and I want to honest show of hands here tonight, how many of you have ever had that fear, well, I might not do a good enough job. Someone could do better than me. Haven't we all thought that? Haven't we felt like we wouldn't do it right or we wouldn't do it? You still think it has something to do with you. It has nothing to do with you. You're just to be used of him to just tell people the good news. And if they get it, God opened their eyes, not because you were better at it than somebody else. If they don't understand it, it's because Satan blinded their eyes. It's not because you were bad at it. None of us have any sufficiency of preaching the gospel. I don't want you to start thinking, well, well, Jim Johnson's better at it than this person. Didn't Paul deal with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when they said, well, I follow Apollos, well, I follow Paul, well, I follow Peter. And they all were looking at the man, and all Paul said was, these are just instruments or tools that God uses to accomplish his work. God's the one who gets the credit. God's the one who gets the glory. So go out in these last days and share with everyone what Jesus said to write down. It's done. It's been paid for. Jesus died for the sins of the world. God has reconciled everything. Now you need to be reconciled to God, and all you have to do is be thirsty. Acknowledge that you need this. And whose job is it, by the way, to make people realize they're thirsty? The Holy Spirit. It's not our job either. All we need to tell them is the good news, and you receive it by faith. And Jesus himself said, if you'll come to him, he will give you living water that will cure that thirst. Pretty easy. Oh, I don't believe it. That's right. What did he tell his disciples when he sent them out two by two? When you go into a town, let your peace go out. If it's received, stay there. If it's not, what were they to do? Sit on the couch and spend a couple more hours, right? No, shake the dust off, move on. Folks, it ain't about us. So relax. Don't worry about whether you're doing it right or wrong. And just go tell everybody that it's done. I got good news for you. All that craziness going on in the world, Jesus loves everybody out there. He loves everybody. Oh, is he going to judge one day? Sure is. But right now we're in that age, well, the Bible Jesus described as the year of the Lord's favor, the time period of grace. It's offered freely to whoever will receive it by faith. Oh, by the way, it wasn't just offered in the church age, though. Go back to Isaiah 55. You're going to see that this offer to receive it without payment has been there all along. Isaiah 55, starting in verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear what, that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
Behold, I make, made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. By the way, that should take care of anybody that thinks they figured out how God does salvation. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and your, my thoughts than your thoughts. And I love this. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth and making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. He doesn't say, man, I really wanted the word to take hold, but Jim Hicks messed it up. It's not what the scripture says, does it? Let me tell you something. You can't mess it up. He's going to accomplish everything he wants to accomplish. The scripture said so. God's not wringing his hands thinking, oh man, things aren't going like I thought they would. All you're going to miss out is on what reward you could get for being used of him. How many of us have been taught by preachers over the years, if you don't tell them, they may never hear? You ever heard that one? That goes so against the scripture. That makes us more important and more powerful than God. Oh, the Bible doesn't teach that. Everybody hears. Those of us who aren't being used will miss out for eternity on the reward that we could have got by being used. But don't think for a second that if you don't tell them, they won't hear. That's just something man has added to try to get people to do stuff. I heard some. Exactly. And we could go on and on in the many, many ways that he declares his glory. He doesn't need you, but he wants to use you. And the message is easy and simple. It's done. It's been paid for. Anyone's thirsty? Come. Anyone's thirsty? Come. And we don't need to try to be tricky. And one of the things that grieves me as I travel around and help churches try to get refocused on following God is a lot of churches today are trying to be more relevant. You ever heard that phrase? We're trying to make the Bible relevant. We're trying to make the gospel relevant. Do you realize what you've just said? The gospel in the Bible is irrelevant. We need to make it relevant. No, no, no. We don't peddle or use underhanded ways, Paul said. We just share with you what it says. It's powerful in and of itself. And folks, let me encourage you in the churches you go to, just don't, you don't need to have a special kind of band or a certain kind of lighting system and all this kind of stuff to just share the gospel. Just love the Lord and love each other and just let the Lord do what he's going to do and he'll accomplish his purposes. All right, let's get back to Revelation and go to verse uh, 7. Revelation 21, verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now that term, the one who conquers, has anybody ever heard Jesus say that before? The one who conquers? Can you think of a place where Jesus said the one who conquers? That was a question, by the way. I'm sorry? He definitely has talked about how he's overcome the world. Will be more than conquerors, yes. 
Very good. I was just, this is a kind of a tricky question, but we've been in Revelation so long you forgot chapters 2 and 3, but we didn't even really get into chapters 2 and 3 in our study since we started in chapter 4, remember? But go to, back to chapters 2 and 3 in the letters to the churches. I'm only going to read to you six of them. There's seven times that he says it. He says it to each church. But for the sake of time, I'm just going to skip over one. Um, if you want to look at it, you can look at it but, as well. But in Revelation chapter 2, look at verse 7. In Revelation 2, verse 7, he says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And we're going to get to that, not tonight, but later on in our study when we see the tree of life in the New Jerusalem. All right. And also in Revelation chapter 2, verse 11, he goes and says, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. By the way, what is the second death? The lake of fire, very good. All right, go to Revelation chapter 2, verse 26. I skipped over the one in verse 17. You can look at that one later on if you want. Look at verse 6. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he'll rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. All right, look at verse, uh, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. To the one who conquers, I will be clothed thus in white garments. Sorry, he will be clothed in less than white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He was an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Look at verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. This is an important section. We'll come back to it later on. I will make a temple, make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the last one is in chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So back in Revelation 21, verse 7, we see this phrase again now at the end of the book of Revelation. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. The Bible says that those of us who conquer are going to be children of God. Now, real quick, go to John chapter 1, and let me show you what I'm talking about here. John chapter 1, and verses 1 through 13. This promise that we'll be His children, children of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. We know who that Word is now then, right? It's Jesus. In Him, in Jesus was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. So here again we see that if we put faith in Jesus Christ, we become children of God. This is done by the Spirit, not by man. It's done by God. Now, let me ask you this question. I've already kind of given you a hint. I've given you a heads up. The Bible says that he who conquers will have this heritage and become a child of God. How do we conquer? 
in, in Christ, close, by faith. Go with me to another book that John wrote. We've already looked at two books that John wrote. We looked at Revelation. We've looked at John. Now let's look at 1 John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 5. It's interesting that all these three places we're going are all things that were written by John because God gave him insight into this aspect here. 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Is that conquering again? And this is the victory that has overcome or conquered the world. What? Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is that, if you're thirsty, come to Jesus and drink. And when you come to Jesus and drink by faith and believe that He is the Christ, and by the way, for Him to be the Christ, He has to be the one that God sent to be the Messiah, to be the Savior of the world. When you believe that Jesus is God and that He's the one that the Father sent, and you put your faith in Him through what He did on the cross, and you don't worry about anything else about getting to heaven, because it's not like, I believe in Jesus and I'm trying to be a good person. No, your faith alone is in what Jesus did. You have been, by faith, called the conqueror, and He gives you His Spirit, and you'll never be thirsty again spiritually. Out of you will flow up rivers of living water, and it will turn into eternal life one day. You are being conformed. You're being transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. You are being renewed. He who began the good work will finish it. You won't lose that salvation. You may not look like it all the time, but it's working, and it's happening, and it will be realized in heaven when you are, well, are you one day going to become God's child? Yeah, we're going to see that later on tonight in 1 John chapter 3. The scripture clearly says, and we'll have you turn there in a little bit, that we are his child now. You're a child of God. Isn't that an awesome thing? If God is for you, who can be against you? Do you realize now why it's kind of crazy that the church today in the chaos of what's going on across the globe shouldn't be looking like everybody else? I got to be honest with you. This whole election season is kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, and all of us who have been around for a few years, we've seen some wacky stuff. Nothing like this year. But you know what I do? I laugh. All I can do is laugh. I laugh for a couple of reasons. It beats crying. And I also laugh for this reason. My father's in control. My father's in control. So Christians... Don't get caught up in all that political arguing and fighting over junk. All that shows is that you think that you have some kind of say or some kind of control. You pray, you vote, leave it to the Lord because we're going to end up where he's decided because the Bible says he puts people in power and takes them out. I know Rubio quoted that when he resigned his presidency and the media went nuts because they didn't understand it. But the world doesn't understand the things we understand. And so, folks, I just want to say to you, you're a child of God. You're a conqueror. You just need to rest in that and just tell everybody the good news. And if they accept it, praise the Lord. If they reject it, Satan blinded their eyes. Keep smiling and just keep going. Keep going. Now, go back to Revelation 21. Let's deal with one more thing before we head on to the next section. Look at verse 8, though. He's just talked about those who conquer or have this heritage. They'll be his children, the children of God. But look at verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable... As for murderers, 
the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of, that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Isn't that interesting? As he talks about to the thirsty, I'm going to give the rivers of living water, and I'll give you eternal life, and, and you'll be my child. He then goes and says, oh, by the way, everyone, though, that is an idolater, a liar, sorcerer, all this kind of stuff, sexually immoral, they're not going to be in heaven. They're going to be in hell, the lake of fire. And well, we've already seen that it burns forever and ever and ever. That's where Satan goes as well. Let me ask you a question. Is there anybody in this room that hasn't done something on this list? I mean, look at the list closely. Is there anybody that can honestly raise your hands and say, there's nothing on that list that I've ever done? Well, what are we going to do then? Because he clearly says that the people that do this are the ones that go to the lake of fire. And you've all just testified by not raising your hands, and you notice my hand didn't go up either, that you've done something on this list. Go back to 1 Corinthians. Very good. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. First Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. He doesn't say you were saved because you stopped doing those things. We all have done stuff on that list. How come we aren't in the group going into the lake of fire, but we're in the group that's going to go into the new Jerusalem? How come? Because we've been washed. Through our faith in Jesus, we were washed isn't that an awesome thing? So, folks, please, I hope there's nobody in this room, I hope there's nobody listening online right now that thinks that they're going to go to heaven because they believe in Jesus and they've been trying to live a good life. It has nothing to do with how good you are. You cannot add to your help God save you. It is Him alone. And if you have never put your full faith in Jesus Christ, do it soon. Do it soon. As His Spirit opens your eyes to the fact that you might still be thirsty. You'd be amazed how many people I deal with across the country who are in churches week after week who think they understood the gospel, but they never did. We actually had a lady in our church just two weeks ago come and give her life to she'd been going to church her whole life. And as her son was being baptized, the Holy Spirit opened her eyes. And she said, for the first time, I understood the gospel. And she was baptized in our sanctuary on Sunday morning. And she told everybody, I thought I understood it, but I, now I do. Folks, the Spirit of God's opening your eyes to truth. Put your full faith in Jesus Christ. All right? Go with me to Revelation 21. We'll read verses 9 through the end of the chapter, and we'll begin to start breaking this section down in the time we have left here tonight. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. And on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst, and the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city <coughs> excuse me, was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Now, as you can see, there's a lot here, and we're not going to get all this done tonight, but we'll see how far we can get in breaking this section down. Here we see at the beginning of this in verse 9, one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls of God's wrath come to John and take John in the spirit up to a high mountain to show him the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And so when he shows him the bride, the wife of the Lamb, what does John see? New Jerusalem, a city. Isn't that interesting? He says, let me show you the, the, the bride, the wife of the lamb, and he shows him a city. How can a city be a bride when we have been told that we are who united with Christ are the bride? We, we see from the city, though, that the, it, the city had 12 tribes of, of Israel inscribed on its gates and the 12 apostles as its foundation. That's an interesting thing, first of all. Have you ever thought about the fact that as John is seeing this city and it said that the 12 apostles of the Lamb had their names on the foundation of this city, that one of those names would have been John's? That, that might have been a little overwhelming to think about. But it says that the 12 gates each have a name of the tribe of Israel, 12 tribes, and the foundations of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And we'll get back to that in a second. And if you remember from our study earlier, the bride is not the church, as we've been taught for all these years. It's made, the bride is made up of Israel and the church. Remember how we did that whole study of how God married Israel, and then he divorced her, and then he remarried. He says he's going to remarry her in the end. And the Bible is very clear that we are called the bride of Christ as the church. He marries us, and he'll never divorce us. And the tribulation saints will all be included. The, the, the new Jerusalem is made up of all the righteous throughout all of history, there in that city. And that's why we can see that it's foundations of 12 apostles, the gates of the 12 tribes of Israel. And actually, as crazy as this sounds, that, uh, the, that the city would be called the bride, 
People being described as a building or a structure is not a new concept in the Bible. I want to take you back to two places in the Bible where the Bible actually talks about the fact that we, as people, are being built into a building. All right? Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, look at verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So again, we see this picture of we who believe in Jesus are being built into a spiritual house. Jesus is described as a living stone. He's the chief cornerstone. And we are being built into a spiritual structure, if you will. It's even more clear, though, in Ephesians chapter 2. Jump back to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, dealing with the fact that Israel and the church together are going to be making the bride. Therefore, verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came, isn't that sad though, how many churches today have hostility toward the nation of Israel? When the scripture is so clear that the gospel is supposed to remove the hostility between us and the Jews? So that's a sad thing. Verse 17, and he, Jesus, came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now hopefully you all understand that individually you're the temple of the Holy Spirit as He lives within each of us. But at the same time the Scripture has been showing us that God is building this structure. It's not something we can see. But this structure He's building that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. The believers of the Old Testament and believers of the New Testament are being built into this spiritual house called the temple of God. And now we see John's told, let me show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And what does he see? This building that's been being built. It's an actual physical city, but it's also made up of people. Because when God sees a city, he sees people. All right? Now, in the, a couple things I want to get to before we close tonight. Right? We've got about 15 minutes left, and, and I think we'll be able to do it. I want to take a quick second to show you a rabbit many Christians like to chase, but you can't catch it, so don't chase it. If you remember, I've taught you it's okay to chase rabbits as long as you can catch them, and when you catch them, they taste good. But this is a rabbit you cannot catch, and too many Christians think they've caught it and argue over this one issue that comes out of Revelation 21. You see, the Bible says that the the gates are all inscribed with the names of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the foundations are inscribed with the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And great debate and arguments, too many, between Christians have happened about who the 12th apostle is supposed to be. Because remember, Jesus chose 12, but one of them was Judas. And we know Judas is not in heaven. People say, well, what if Judas repented at the end? The Bible's very clear that he didn't. The Bible says he went where he belonged. He was a child of perdition or son of Satan from the beginning. I've lost none, Jesus said in John 17, except the one that never was. So, folks, I know God is gracious, and he would have given salvation to Judas if Judas asked, but Judas never did. Oh, he was sorry for what he did. He regretted what he did, but it wasn't repentance. There's a big difference between sorry and repentance. And the Bible's very clear. Judas is in hell. Okay? So Judas can't be one of the 12. Who's going to be the 12th? Some people say it's Matthias. In Acts chapter 1, you know Peter stands up and says the scripture says that we have to replace him and we have to choose from among us someone that's been with us from the time that Jesus was baptized all the way to his ascension because he's going to be a witness. And they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. Other people say, no, it has to be Paul because Paul, you know, he's written half of the Bible and he was taught by Jesus face to face. He calls himself the last of the apostles or the least of the apostles. And, and see, we fight over because we think there only has to be 12. I could show you two or three places where the Bible describes Barnabas as an apostle. Well, not a possible, apostle. Here's the deal. We don't know who the 12th name is. And we can argue with each other. I have an opinion, and I think I'm right. But I've learned over the years that it doesn't do any good to argue over something the Bible doesn't clearly show us. So we just got to leave it alone. And don't chase that rabbit. And don't get sucked into that when your brothers try to suck you into it. Back in Mark chapter 3, you can write this down and look at it later on because for the sake of time, I need to keep moving. Back in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19, we see when Jesus designated the first 12. And there's an interesting little phrase in there. It says, he chose whom he desired, and he designated them to be apostles. Guess what that means? Jesus is going to pick who the 12th one is, and that's the one it's going to be. Like I said, I think I know who it is. But I don't know who it is, and I don't need to argue with you about it because it doesn't do us any good. Years ago when I was younger, because of how God's wired my brain and how my brain has been wired by God to memorize most of this book, I used to, when I was young, love to argue Scripture. You know why? Because I always thought that I had more bullets in my gun than you did. And I was always proud of the fact that I could pull out seven Scriptures to your two. Until God took me to a passage I want to take you to right now. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let 
If you ever want to ask me one day what I think, I don't mind telling you, but if you're asking me so that you can debate it with me, don't ask me. 2 Timothy chapter 2, look at verses 22 and following. It says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with what? Gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. What did Paul say when he was talking in Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and following, when he said, I want to know Christ, and, I want to, and he says, I want to forget what is behind and pressing on towards what is ahead. And then he says, all who are mature will have the same view. But if in one of these areas you disagree with me, the Lord will show you. And he didn't get into the debate. Folks, I got no problem with you asking and talking about these things and sharing with each other what you think. Leave it there. The moment you try to convince the other person and it starts to turn into a debate, it turns into sin. It turns into sin. There's nothing wrong with saying, here's what I think it is and why, and here's what I think it is and why, and leave it at that. You know what I'm saying? That's another good thing when it comes to this whole predestination and free will jump. Here's where I am and why, here's why I'm and why, and leave it. Stop dividing and fighting over it. Now, we also saw last week that the walls of the city were 216 feet thick, and the length and the width and the height of the city was 1,400 miles on each side. By the way, this is a pretty good-sized city. We've already touched on that a little bit. But I, th I thought I'd have some fun and show you a little bit more about how big this city is really going to be. Um, the, Tony, in that book that you, uh, some of you got on the things that must take place, brings this out on this chapter. The volume of the city would, would hold 2,744 million cubic miles of whatever fluid you put into it, all right? It is so big, it would hold 2,744 cubic mi million cubic miles. The total of all the water on the earth in our oceans and everything is roughly 322 million cubic miles. Did you catch that? We got a lot of water and a lot of oceans that are pretty deep all over our globe, right? Three, that only co comes up to 322 million cubic miles. You pour that all into the city, and it doesn't even fill a quarter of it because it's 2,744 million cubic miles is how, how we feel it would be. It's a big, big city. But we can get so caught up on the dimensions of the city, we would miss something that I had never seen before until my study for this Bible study tonight. The Bible says that it is as long as it is wide and as it is high. In other words, it's a cube. All right? Now, for years, I've heard people say, well, the Bible just says it's as long and wide and high. It could be a pyramid. You ever heard those things? It could be. No, I actually think the Bible teaches us it's a cube. You know why? Because this is not the first cube we've seen in the Bible. Does anybody know where the first cube in the Bible is? And if you don't, that's okay. I hadn't known this until I did this study. Go with me to 1 Kings chapter 6. And let me show you the first cube in the Bible. 
1 Kings chapter 6, verses 14 through 22. Solomon is now building the temple. And remember, the temple was to be built according to the instructions and the, the measurements that God gave. Verse 14 of 1 Kings 6. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. The house that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers. All was cedar. No stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. And he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. And the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. Where is the first cube we see that's covered in gold? The holy of holies in the temple. By the way, who dwelt in the holy of holies in the temple? God did. I don't think it's an accident that the new Jerusalem, where remember God comes and dwells with man? I don't think it's an accident that it's a cube. Perfectly a cube, just like the holy of holies was. Now, we want to deal with something else, though. Well, let me... Let's have some quick fun, and then we'll wrap up with one last thing. Why does it need to be so high? I mean, to us, we think about it, 1,400 miles high. And again, if you weren't here last week, to give you an idea of how high that is, if you were to go to our space station, you could then take that distance three more times, and you'd get to the top of the city. All right? As far away as the space station is, that's only a quarter of the height as it would be to the top of the city. I'm sorry? The sky will be definitely be inside of it. But remember, it's going to be different from the sky we know now because there's not going to be a sun or a moon. But why does it need to be so high? Now, let me give you a Bible answer first. The first answer is we don't know. But I'm going to speculate here. And again, whenever I speculate, I tell you this is speculation. I'm not preaching it as how it will be. But I also only will speculate when I believe the Bible gives us enough information to speculate. So what I'm about to share with you, I think, comes from Scripture. Can't prove it, but it has enough scripture for me to be willing to tell you, I think this is what it is. I think the Bible hints at the fact that we'll be able to fly. I really do believe the Bible hints at the fact that we'll be able to fly. And if not fly, definitely transport. Remember Philip and how he was led of the spirit to leave Samaria, met the Ethiopian eunuch. As he baptized him, boom, he was in Azotus. Go with me. Back in your minds, and I want you to turn to Acts chapter 1 as you're going in your minds to the beginning of this section that we're breaking down in Acts chapter, or sorry, Revelation 21 verse 9. As you're turning to Acts chapter 1, um, in Revelation chapter 21 verse 9, Paul said, I was taken by this angel, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, in the spirit where? To, where was he taken to see the bride? To a very high mountain. How did he get there? He was whoop, taken to a very high mountain. It was no big deal for him to go up to this high mountain to see the new Jerusalem. 
Look at Acts chapter 1 and look at verse 9. Right after Jesus says you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Look at verse 9. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. What did Jesus do when he left the earth? He just ascended, didn't he? He just, like gravity had no effect, he just lifted up. Go to 1 John chapter 3. I told you earlier you'd come back to 1 John 3. Go to 1 John chapter 3 and look at verse 2. First John chapter 3, I'll read verses 1 and 2. It's just too good to skip over verse 1 as well. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. There it is again. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. If the kind of bodies that we get are going to be like Jesus' resurrected body, passing through walls will be no big deal, yet he had bones and flesh. He ate a piece of fish and it didn't hit the floor. Yet at the same time, he would disappear. He appeared to the two men on the road to Emmaus, walked with them and talked with them. But the moment that their eyes were open and they recognized it was him, he disappeared. Folks, I think that that size will be nothing because I think the Bible hints at the fact that we're going to be able to fly or transport or move around in ways that are not limited like we are now. Some of you are thinking, man, that'd be a long elevator. No, I don't think we're going to need it. I don't think we're going to need it. I think that's not going to seem that big to us. It does now. But at that time... It probably won't. All right. Now, in the time that we have left, and I know it's short, I want to hit something real fast because I want to keep you caught up with where they were on Tuesday night. We also saw in Revelation 21, and we touched on it last week, that there's no temple in the New Jerusalem since God and the Lamb are its light. But because of, because of the, the, and also because of this, there'll be no night and the gates will never be shut, which is a wonderful thing how fear will be gone. But how can there be no temple in the new heaven and the new earth when we just read in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, go back there, Revelation 2, 7, we just read in Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, sorry, not, not 2, verse 7, it's, um, let me find it, verse, Revelation 3, verses 12 and 15, the one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the new city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. And if you've been paying attention all through the book of Revelation, we've seen a temple in heaven, haven't we? I mean, in Revelation 7, real quickly, Revelation 7, verses 13 through 15, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where do they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his what? Temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Keep that in mind. That's important. Revelation chapter 11, look at verse 19. Revelation 19, the scripture says, then God's temple in heaven 
was opened and the Ark of the Covenant was seen within his temple. The flash of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and earthquake, and heavy hail. So again, all through Revelation, we've seen a temple in heaven. I, there's actually more. Revelation 15, verses 5 through 8. I'm not going to read them because of time. You'll see again, you see the sanctuary of the Ten of Witness, which is the temple there. And also, um, like I just touched on, Revelation chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, he says that he's going to make those who conquer a pillar in the temple of his God. The New Jerusalem. Yet the scripture says that in the new heaven and the new earth, in this new Jerusalem, there's no temple. But there's a temple right now in heaven. But when he comes to dwell on the earth, there's no temple. Yet Jesus said, we'll be a pillar in the temple forever and ever. Help me. How do you put that together? Has anybody caught it yet? The city itself. The city itself. What makes it the temple? The presence of God. There was a temple in heaven, in the, what we call temporary heaven, if you will. And then John could see that, because that's where God was. But when he comes to indwell, or sorry, to live on the earth with us, there's no need of a building anymore, because wherever he is becomes the temple. Wherever he is becomes the temple. That's how you became the temple of the Holy Spirit. When you got saved and he came to indwell you, were you the temple of God before that? Nope. You only became the temple of God when his spirit came to indwell you. And where his presence is, that's the temple. And since he comes to live with us and there's no need of any separating the holiness from everything and all the other sin because it's all going to be gone... That's why he says we'll never be able to go. It doesn't mean we won't go out of the city. I'm going to show you later on in our study in the next few weeks that we'll be able to come and go from the city. But we'll never go out of it, not meaning the city. We'll never go out of the temple because the temple is his presence. His presence. Folks, can't wait to show you some more. But you'll have to wait till next week. We'll see you then. Thanks for coming.